southernmost point of Dorne to the lands of always winter, and what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk, and I'm Ken Napsok, and this is episode three of our rewatch journey, episode 79 overall, and we are going back into HBO's Game of Thrones for all the themes and lessons, all the things that connect us to this story, the overall story, Song of Ice and Fire is present indeed, but we are concentrating on what we watched and what the world sat down to watch all the way back in 2011. Why is it still powerful? Why do we have passionate opinions about it? I think those answers are in the themes. And it is just me this week. That's right. You, you just have me. I, I apologize for that. That's going to be the case uh, during uh, a lot of these rewatches. But when possible, of course, we're going to have uh, Rachel Cushing, Lon Harris, Andres Cabrera, Thomas Risling, and a lot more coming through these studios. We've got a lot of episodes to go. This is just episode three. So uh, you'll you'll get to see me today, but don't worry. I got some great calls from uh, some uh, great uh, Casterly Talk listeners, and that's what we love doing it here. So you know, uh, occasionally uh, we'll have the other angle too. So it looks like it, you know, we'll change it up if you're watching on YouTube. This is an audio podcast first, uh, but uh, you know we're also on YouTube on uh, my uh, YouTube channel, Ken Napsock. So uh, watch along if you want. If you want to see me talk at you. All right, enough of that. Let's get to what we are talking about today, which is episode three, Lord Snow. This is, I think, the first episode, you know, you're coming out of the pilot, you go to the King's Road. I talked a lot last week with Rachel Cushing how sometimes I'm going to rewatch the King's Road episode. Sometimes, I don't know, just maybe feels like, ah, we're going to, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. We're traveling, we're traveling, we're doing that thing. Uh, this is the one, though, I think things start to move. Some of the inciting incidents that we're already, uh, you know, have already uh, learned in the first two episodes are starting to go somewhere where the intrigue that everyone loves about Game of Thrones is there as well. Original air date on the episode, May 1st, 2011. Where were you in 2011? Director Brian Kirk, writers Benioff and Weiss are handling a lot of the duties early on. Cinematographer was Marco Pontecorvo and editing Francis Parker. We always like to mention that because how this show was shot, especially in the early seasons and how it was editing, uh, edited really set the tone going forward, but also just helped tell this story. And that's what we're here for. Uh, we love uh, diving in to the big themes and the moments. And I, the reason I always love doing that is is just to maybe sometimes look past just what's on the surface of the show, which is fantastic, which is loud and vibrant and, and intriguing in its own right. But I want to look past that to what fuels the story and the choices they made and why I feel that makes this a story, a show that uh, is going to stick with you for a long time if you love it. Some people just come in and out of the show. They loved it on to the next big show. Uh, and and, and, and I'm, I'm like that in some ways too. But, you know, this is a show we keep revisiting. This is a story that you keep learning from. And that's, again, why we're here. So let's, let's dive on into what we've got going on. The main theme for this here is, uh, the, the, as Rachel said last week, the characters in the King's Road 
They're on their journeys. The journey has begun. We've left Winterfell. We've left the safety of old lives. This is the hero's journey. We got a lot of heroes, maybe good and bad, but a lot of heroes that we got to get to here. So I thought that was a just a great point that Rachel mentioned last week uh, that the characters are on the journey. But now that they're on their journey, and in some cases they get to the very locations of the rest of their story, the next chapter of their story. What do you do with who you are in a new land? What do you do with yourself when when you're on a journey? That's what kept coming up in this episode. And and, and the bigger question of what is what what is the difference between knowing who you are and not changing and growing? What is what is the difference of this is who I want to be? This is who I know I am. But I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to get a little stubborn and I'm going to try to uh, you know, wedge a, a circle into a triangle on a little playing board, or am I going to grow, adapt, and can you play the game? This is the Game of Thrones. When you play it, you either win or you die. That's what Cersei says in Episode 7 of Season 1. And also, if you play the Game of Thrones slot machine, um, that's what she says every time you cash out with the 25 cents uh, from the $100 you put in. But maybe that's just me. So can you play the game? Do you want to play the game? And why? It's a question, as we always say, we don't have all the answers sometimes. I love kind of just, and there's some here in this episode that's like, I'm not, you know, we're not fully formed yet on what we think or know these characters. And therefore, some of these answers are floating around and they're still changing. And I think that's part of the fun. The big one here is this episode's titled Lord Snow, but really it's almost just before the middle of the episode. It's about a 55 minute episode, 57 or so with credits. It's John at the Wall, the Lord with no name, and that's the title of the episode. So I try to focus on, you know, why is that? Why is this the title of the episode when there's a lot of other big scenes, big moments, important moments? Daenerys Targaryen has what I think is a tremendously important moment. Uh, Why couldn't this be Khaleesi? Well, I think it could. I think it could easily. But uh, Lord Snow, there's a big giant lesson here, and and I think you'll see. I think there's some stuff sets into him. He takes these big steps that just guide him along the way. Danny too, but it makes sense. Lord Snow. Plus, we're starting to uh, really his journey being tied into the to the the final story, the final battle, some of the final battles. That's in- interesting too, as well. Maybe that's part of the decision. So we'll dive into some of that stuff, but uh, let's go with some of the. Other uh, examples of this theme, I do believe there's a lot. Ned arrives at King's Landing. And here's the thing about Ned. He, as we know, is proudly, um, shall we say, Ned Stark is is proudly northern, proudly Stark, as he should be. But we also can use the term stubborn, stubborn Stark. And we, Game of Thrones fans, know we love Ned, but man, he certainly got himself in some trouble by just sticking to what he is and who he was. And this is why I, I, I just, this jumps out of me as, as the start of the theme, the start of what we're talking about here is what, what do you bring to your new location? What do you bring with you on your journey? That is you, that you know is you. Things you're not going to compromise on. I'm not suggesting this episode says it's good to compromise on who you are. I think it's, quite frankly, saying the opposite of know who you are, but make sure that you can step forward, grow, change, adapt, uh, take what you are and use it on a bigger level, on a bigger scale. I think that's there as well. And it starts for me, it really jumps out when Ned arrives on King's Landing. Uh, We've got... um, 
the Greeting Party there, and the guy says, uh, you know, would you like to change into something more appropriate? No, Ned doesn't. Ned doesn't. And it's a great moment. It's a funny moment. It says a lot about Ned, but that's the thing. It says a lot about Ned. He's not going to play that game. He is going to wear his dusty, dirty, probably smelly, stark northern road gear, and he's going to go straight into the uh, small council meeting where he's going to learn a lot. And I think that is... That is the theme. Everyone in this episode is arriving at the next point, at the next chapter. They are moving forward on that journey we talked about. And what are you going to do with yourself when you get there? And Ned's answer is nothing. I'm going to be me, which again, not a bad thing. Not a bad thing, but we know where that goes with Ned. So that's a little moment there. We'll dive into some of that stuff there. I also... Early on, we go to one of, I think, one of the more interesting Joffrey scenes. It's Joffrey and Cersei. And this is a great Cersei scene. It's her early on. This is referred to a lot in in other conversations about Cersei trying to teach Joffrey, trying to mold him, and how she failed at that there. But this is a moment where she's still in control. The dynamic is still mother, son. And, you know, uh, she, she has... I don't want to say upper hand. You'd hope it was a little more than that. You hope a mother-son relationship isn't about who has the upper hand or not, if you know what I mean. But, you know, Cersei's the one giving some lessons and valuable lessons. And here it is again. Joffrey is on his journey. He has arrived back in King's Landing. He's got the injury from Nymeria. And... I want to make sure I'm not I'm not rooting for Joffrey. Joffrey's not one of those characters I think uh, you know that's easy to root for even in Game of Thrones. But this is one of Joffrey's most honest moments, and I actually really like it. This is why I can say it's an underrated Joffrey scene. I think it's as much talked about and analyzed Cersei scene. Uh, and Lita Heating gets just just takes us through this 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 valuable lesson from her, uh, and it, it leads to the, uh, you know, the Starks are enemies kind of conversation with Joffrey. But he's got some interesting points about how to rule, how to form an army, a standing, you know, one kind of army under the king makes some sense. Cersei realizes that. But here's another example. Joffrey is on his journey. He knows who he wants to be. He knows who he is in his heart. Not a good heart, but he knows who he is. But he can't necessarily stay that. He has to, I would hope, grow. But adapt is probably more apropos for Joffrey Baratheon. Um, which is always weird that we definitely refer to her as Cersei Lannister, not Cersei Baratheon. Uh, even though, I, I, yeah, a different conversation. Um, so that's why I love this scene. This is going to back to the scene. It's now even Joffrey is on it. And how is he going to adapt? How is he going to learn? about uh, uh, who I want to be going forward. And, uh, uh, you know, again, what you do with that is part of it. Ned being stubborn, Ned not changing his clothes, still means Ned is is going to go use himself for what he believes is good. For Joffrey, maybe he believes it's good too. But you see Cersei and Joffrey taking the same lesson in a Game of Thrones style, twisting it to their own needs, uh, going... Though there's an interesting moment here, we can talk about that uh, a little um, right now. I think there is, um, well, I'll put it in the foreshadowing. That's right. But there is there is some stuff in there, things that mean more. Um, and 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 it's Cersei saying, "Do something nice for the Stark girl." That's in this scene too. An interesting 
you know, telling sign, telling point from uh, Cersei there. The, the theme goes on. We got Arya and Ned. Little lady shouldn't play with swords. I wasn't playing, and I don't want to be a lady. We know what that means for Arya, but there again, too. Here is Ned um, not changing his clothes. We'll keep coming back to that, but here's Ned approaching the same way. Look, hey, you're a little lady. Give me that. Oh, Needle, you named it, and that's not who you're going to be. And he has some valuable stuff to say about Cersei, a lot of, uh, excuse me, about Sansa. Uh, Sansa and Cersei, it's it's, at times, it's, you know, easy to confuse them. I'm kidding. Um, He talks about um, Sansa's role um, and the part she has to play, the part she should play. And again, what are you going to do? Here's Ned staying firm in I Am Stark. Hand to the king, I'm down here at King's Landing, but I am Stark. I am the North, and I'm going to be that. And I think Robert needs that. All good things, I think, but he is there on an island right now. He is on an island, not ready to play the game. And he's basically uh, telling Arya that Sansa has to do the same thing, but maybe more play the game. It's, 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 it's already confusing for me, which is why Arya uh, comes back with, how can you let someone let her marry someone like that and that doesn't have that answer and maybe that drives ned to more to more uh more stubbornness um uh and and his change his thoughts on 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 the roles we have to play and in truth what does he do we go to the end of the episode which we'll talk about and he hires serial pharrell so it definitely works i think ned sees some of it whether or not he applies it to himself and changes himself adapts himself well, as we know, probably not. Uh, so there's that. So we'll, we're going to discuss later, To King Robert uh, is very much part of this uh, theme. Uh, he's he's kind of a signpost of when, uh, I don't know, he's a signpost of uh, when you, when you uh, don't change and adapt and uh, the, bad, the bad side of that. So we'll go into that there, too, as I go through these themes and lessons by myself today. All right, so we are picking up uh, this stuff here with Daenerys. I want to get into the Daenerys stuff here. Um, well, there's a little one. We, we It leads into Jorah. Jorah is part of this theme, too. Upon hearing the news of, of Danny being pregnant, he has to decide. He has to decide. He decides incorrectly, as we would learn later on in the story, if he'll act as his old self or his new self. He's someone who's who has adapted to a new way of life, but the trauma in him, the shame he still has, it's, it's, you know, Ian Glenn is the great scene here. Oh, my father's a great, a man of great honor. And I, and I betrayed him. It's still so in him. It's his old self or his new self. And he wants to maybe redeem his old self, find redemption uh, and, and make up for what he did in the past, not realizing he's already, he's already in a new world, a new land that he knows on the surface, but he's already on his new path. Can he adapt? Can he change? He's going to learn that. It's a, Powerful lesson that absolutely changes his life later on. And here's the first moment. This is the moment where Jorah keeps to his old self, fails to learn the lesson, fails to adapt, and it does cost him here. But he's got a duty. I get it. I get it. He's not as connected to to Daenerys yet. But, uh, you know, it costs him. Everything will cost you here in Game of Thrones. But let's focus in on Daenerys. I... Really, this is why I think this episode could be called uh, Khaleesi uh, of the Great uh, Grass Sea. Um, not quite yet the Mother of Dragons. So Daenerys is um, already starting to adapt. She's already taking, trying to take control over 
who she is and her choices and decision and the things that are happening to her. A lot of things happen to her. She tries to reverse that and can take control of her life. We talked about that a lot uh, last week in the King's Road episode, her and Dorea, that's what it's uh, about. Uh, Rachel brought up some great points about uh, the concept of slavery, already always being involved and just kind of uh, under thumb, under uh, oppression, under control. Danny's always in that spot. So when we pick it up, we're having a conversation about that. She is literally on her journey forward. They're on the road. They're traveling to Vice-Dothrak. And she is talking to Jorah about the cultures, uh, the culture of the Dothraki and, and, and slaves and taking slaves and the power. She sees that slave hit. And, and it's in this moment she asks the Horde to stop. And this is when Daenerys, to me, starts to become a queen or Drogo's Khaleesi. Not even a Khaleesi or the Khaleesi. Drogo's Khaleesi at this point. That's this part of the journey. And when she tells them to stop and says, until I command them otherwise, Jorah says, you're starting to sound like a queen. So that's a great moment. Here's someone changing who she was and becoming something else, but she's not quite ready. This is one of my favorite Daenerys Targaryen moments in all of the show. And Amelia Clark, I think, grew into the role, continued to improve as a performer, uh, and uh, is an engaging personality on screen and off. I uh, love everything she's done. But in season one, I think she was um, she's continued to get better and better and better. And, but this is one of those early moments where I love going back and kind of see how seeing how she played it. I love when she gets off the horse, kind of walks away into the into the into the uh, wild there, and catches her breath. And there is she's just had this great exchange with Jorah. She just had this great moment. Until I command them otherwise, you're starting to sound like a queen. She, she, she's there. She feels it. Um, she sees the way forward. But in this moment, she's not just wandering. She's not just smelling the bushes and the breeze and the flowers and the trees. She, she's, Amelia Clerk plays it as taking a breath, wanting to get away. And I think at that moment, I think for me, and this is, we're playing with the show and not anything that might be present in the books at this point, but we can bring in her having that vision of the Red Door House as a kid and kind of her past and her, her, her youth. And I wouldn't say it's a good youth. I'd say it's a youth, a childhood on the run. Uh, Viserys already treating her bad. A lot, of, a lot of bad things in Danny's life. So I'm not saying in this moment she's like, ah, oh, I'd like to go back to that. I just think it represents her not quite ready. To me, she almost wants to turn back. She won't. I don't think Danny would at this point, and, and, and really she couldn't, unless you keep, you keep running into the wilderness, and then what happens? I just think emotionally she takes that breath. <sighs> and I think she wants to go back. She knows she can't, but she wants to turn back, and that is when Viserys comes running through on the horse. Little moment of tension, but the brother emerges. And to me, Viserys is her past. Not her past in terms of Targaryen legacy. She, in the end, uh, right or wrong, and I, I, I think mostly right, it connects to that legacy, connects to who it is. I think season seven, a Targaryen returning to Dragonstone, great moment. So when I say Viserys is her past, it isn't it isn't a slight on the legacy of the Targaryens. Complicated legacy as it may be, I just think it is her past. It is her path. And much like Jorah at the end of the episode, it's a brief moment to decide, do I go do what I'm supposed to do? When my old self has been about following Daenerys Targaryen and reporting on her. And maybe I can find my way back to my old life, my old way. I think Daenerys in this moment sees Viserys, who is just horrible. He's horrendous. Right from the beginning, but go to the pilot episode, uh, the bath scene, 
uh, and just any any conversation they have during the the first uh, episode and even in the second. Viserys is is brutal, and it's this moment that Danny is ready to go forward. Now she's not quite ready to uh, completely let go. Uh, she could have probably had uh, Viserys could have been killed right here, gone. Now says a great moment uh, with uh, Eerie kind of giving that like, like, yeah, she wants to save the. She wants to save the horrible guy. So this to me is, it's just, it's a great Danny scene. It's a great season one Danny scene. This is where she knows I have to go forward. I want to adapt. I want to grow. Who are you going to be on your journey? Again, that keeps coming up. That's what's, uh, what this episode is about. Again, I ask the question, what is the difference between knowing who you are and not changing and growing? What is the difference? Who do you want to be? Uh, and Danny in this moment has a clear picture of who she wants to be, and she takes that step forward. I've always loved that there. Uh, we'll jump ahead here, keeping with the theme, going to the end of the episode with Serio Farrell. Uh, this is the stuff with Arya. Uh, boy, girl, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference. You are a sword. Great stuff, powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. But um, to me, that is all about Arya shedding any known roles uh, uh, so that she can grow and become who she does want to be. Arya has a very clear picture very early on for the first time we meet her with the needlepoint scene. She knows we get who she wants to be, but everything else uh, about uh, her her name, her role, her family, her gender, everything in this uh, in these scenes, it's, it's working against her. Everyone, even her own father. It's like, yeah, come on, put down the sword, you can be a lady. He changes, he hires the dancing master, Sarah Farrell shows up, and I just love that this is, uh, in uh, to me, the theme as well. That uh, who you are, uh, you, you, don't, you don't need to change the course, but you don't need to be beholden to that on your journey forward. You can work, you can grow, you can change, you can adapt, and you can occasionally, yeah, maybe play the game. Learn how to hold the sword right, to me, is kind of playing the game. You want to be a sword fighter? You're going to have to learn to do it right. You want to be the hand of the king? There might be some things you have to do to do it right, to survive, to move, to go forward. And I think that's why this episode also ends on that as well. Great ending. We're going to talk about Serio Pharrell uh, as well. Let's get back up to uh, Jon Snow here, the title episode, Lord Snow. All right. Um, here's the thing. I, I just love... Love everything up at the wall. I mean, look, I got, as always, I got my Night's Watch hat. Uh, it's um, it's just, again, Jon Snow, a lord with no name. And Jon is better than them, right? He says that. He knows it. Skill-wise, uh, lineage, even though he doesn't know his exact lineage, and he's a bastard, he, he's essentially in this moment a, a, a lord from House Stark. Uh, he's kicking their asses. Alistair Thorne still being a Dick, and it's the great real moment uh, that we see there, and 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 uh, Mormont, your Mormont, and Tyrion have the conversation. Your Mormont, uh, 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 one of my favorite characters. Uh, complicated at times, uh, you know. Seven, I I don't need him to be nice. I need him to train them, and, and that's something I, I like as well. This is almost literally a you want us on the wall, you need us on the wall type of moment, I guess you could say. Um, but. Um, John is, is right in a sense, and Tyrion gives him the valuable lesson. And we're going to go a little bit more into what Tyrion brings to this conversation in this part of the theme. We got a call coming from Alden, Alden Diaz that's a slightly different take on it and a great great look at another big theme in this episode. But it's, it's driven home. Tyrion brings it up, but it's really driven home for me 
when he goes up to the wall to see Benjamin Stark. We'll talk about uh, what that means uh, to the future and, and how we, in the second half of the show, we'll always go into the moments that mean a little more. Uh, so John uh, gets told very plainly by Benjamin uh, that uh, you're not better than anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. He just assumes. Oh, you just assume because you're my brother's bastard, which we always, you know, we got to wonder if, how much Benjamin does know or how much Benjamin has figured out. Rachel and I have had those conversations so far in the rewatch. But he's pretty angry. He's pretty forceful. Not angry, but just forceful. He's trying to get John to get it. You are not who you are anymore. Who you are inside, your heart, your cores, everything about you uh, on the inside is is important. None of that matters. You've got to move forward. You've got to see things differently. You've got to grow, change, and and uh, be better. Not be be better skill-wise, but be better as a person. And, and I think John gets it. He just, and it's going to be an ongoing thing. But this is why I think it's great to call this episode Lord Snow. After more conversations with John, after the scene, Gran and Pip, and even Rast, in a little bit of a different light, John, in seeing people as they really are, uh, realizes that that is more productive, that is more helpful, that is more healthy, and that is more powerful. The we will survive together. That's that's something that becomes very important for John. It's important now. He makes the adaptation. He makes the change. Not adaptation, adaption. We're not, we're not adapting books to screen. Sorry. He makes the change here. It's going to get bigger and better. Yes, but I think this is a guiding principle for Jon Snow. We talk a lot about the why of Jon Snow. It is not just that he is interested in helping the uh, cripples, the bastards, and the broken things. Title of episode four coming on. It's not just about what Tyrion's kind of teaching him. See past into uh, the surface into who they, they are as people. He's seen the value in that. The man who would eventually lose his own life to save wildlings, who he now views as free folk, Uh, the man who would put aside anything and maybe even bend the knee in front of a a complicated, uh, controversial ruler for the good of the realm, all his messages of working together, it all starts here. It's just simply more productive. When he chooses to take who he is, his principles, his core principles, and adapt them to his surroundings and grow and move forward and start to see everyone in a different light and start to see what he can mean to them if he doesn't hold to this stubborn notion of what who I am and what my name and title, even with the bastard label, what that means, the chip on the shoulder. It starts to fade. It starts to melt. And right away, he sees the benefits. He now has a core group around him. They now can work together. That group, too, other than our good friend Rast, Samuel Tarley hasn't arrived yet. But that group is the group that keeps him at the wall, right? That's the group that holds the wall. That's the group that helps him get elected, whether he wanted it or not, the Lord, uh, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And that's not just for John's personal gain. It all starts to flow out into... Um, just what needs to happen for the realm. And I think it does tie back to this moment. It's one of the first big lessons for Jon Snow. It's one of the first big growth points. 
He is still who he is going to our main theme, but he has started to change, adapt, and grow. And I think that's part of the lesson for all of us in life as well. So uh, we also talk about King Robert. We got the great scene here. In the second half, we'll be talking about some of our favorite moments, as we always do, some of our quotes and all those kind of things here. Um, but King Robert in the uh, wine scene, um, as he sits there making fun of Lancel Lannister, then they go into the great conversation about the first kills. But if you if you really watch Mark Addy deliver those lines before Jamie Lannister is called in, and he's just chatting with, with Sir Barristan, talking about the, the first kill, the Tarly boy. It's, you know, he's talking about his first kill and, and says at one point, you know, that, that guy, that, 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 that dumb highborn could have could have stayed behind, right? Could have stayed at the, it didn't have to charge into the battle. And he'd be alive and he'd be in a miserable marriage and all those kind of things. But it's, it's, Robert isn't celebrating. He wants to. He's drinking wine. He's gonna. He wants to brag. That's what. Yeah, I got my kill. But I always. I go to that moment. It, 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 Mark Addy plays it to me. Is Robert Brathian isn't celebrating his big rebellion here. He's almost lamenting it, and we know he has a hole in his heart the size of Lyanna Stark, and he can't change and grow and adapt and face the truth there. But as we always learn uh, in Game of Thrones, and Tywin says it plainly later on, uh, winning and ruling are two different things. This is that thought for Robert. His old self versus his new self. What do you do on the next part of your journey? What do you do with yourself? He couldn't adapt. He couldn't change. He never wanted to let go. He didn't want to let go of the memory of Lannis Stark. He did not want to let go of the big black bearded bruiser with the warhammer, the conqueror, the winner. That was part of him. That's who he was. And he had some strong characteristics, charismatic. People rallied around him. You know, we always, maybe we can blame Robert for uh, this lie that started a war. Or everything about uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna. We can, we can put a lot of that on, on the, uh, at the feet of Robert as his fault. But everyone followed him. They were ready. The realm was ripe for rebellion. That's without a doubt. But he was their leader. It wasn't Ned, it wasn't Helen Reed, it wasn't Thoros Vermeer, wasn't anyone else. It was, it was Robert Baratheon. Uh, and that makes sense because he has good traits. And this is why I keep going back to this episode, who you are. I'm not saying sacrifice your principles, sacrifice who you are. But you've got to change and grow and adapt and accept that you're on the next part of the journey. Robert Baratheon never accepts it. And this scene is him just looking back. Ah, my first kill. But God damn, I wish I just was on the battlefield forever. I wish it could just be that forever. And you can't. We all know. Watching. We can't. And I think we can sympathize and empathize with Robert Baratheon. But we see, or you should see, especially in these moments, you should see um, the cost of it cost of not going forward that is some of the big stuff here some of the big themes also this one here we're going to get to alden's call in a second i love this and and i, I think i think i'll wait till till rachel and andreas and lawn and others and even if you want to call out there listening you want to call in i uh, love the scene love the scene with ned and jamie lannister um and i love the moment where Jamie talks about stabbing the Mad King after he describes in very painful, explicit 
taunting detail to Ned Stark about what happened to his father and brother when he says, I stabbed him. It, it felt like justice. And Ned's reaction is, is that, is that, oh, is that, is that what you thought? Is that what you thought? Is it, you thought, oh, you thought you were being a hero. And the look on JB's face, the man just told the killer of the king who killed his brother and father brutally, horribly, legendarily bad. He doesn't accept my justice. In fact, as we know, Ned's the one that found him there at the throne, right? So this is not necessarily tied directly into the big theme. I just love this. I just love this question. What is justice in this world? What is it? As Tyrion will say later on, if you want justice, you've come to the wrong place. I love that in episode three, we're getting this big question. What is it? I, if I'm Ned, I'm, this isn't a point fingers at stubborn Ned, but if I'm Ned, holy moly, like, I'd be like, thank you, thank you, justice, revenge, right? Nah, there's a different concept of it. And I think Ned's might, I don't know if it's right or wrong. I just, I understand where Ned's coming from. It's dark side, light side, right? Do you go dark to get victory? And if you go dark, can you ever, can you ever go back if you go to the light side? Just take it in terms of the force. And with Jamie Lannister, I think he feels stuck. Clearly we see he wants to make moves and he in the end goes back. We'll get to those episodes later on. Anyways, what is justice in the world? That's another theme lesson. Right now, I don't have the answers. And I want you guys to give me the answers. Before we uh, take a break, we're going to get to this great call from Alden Diaz. And look, if you're out there listening or watching, you can just go to the Anchor app or the Anchor desktop uh, portal. And you can leave a message, a 59-second message. Uh, Look ahead to episode four. Any episode uh, you want to get to. You know, keep within season one so the calls aren't too far ahead. We got a long way to go here. Uh, or you want to answer any questions in the past. Also, from time to time, there will be news of the day that pops up. And we'll be talking it here, uh, talking about it here on this show, too. Casterly Talk is, is not just now a, a rewatch channel. It is um, also discussing Game of Thrones. Uh, overall, news, uh, House of the Dragon, all that kind of stuff. So, anyways, uh, let's go into Alden's great call about one of the themes present in Episode 3, Lord Snow. Hey, Ken, it's Alden here, and I am so excited to dive into Lord Snow. The theme that I found myself gravitating toward the most here is the idea of looking beneath the surface, those who choose to do so and those that can't find the capacity within themselves. So we have small examples like Jorah finding the common ground with the Dothraki through Rakaro, that conversation revealing them to not entirely be the savages that we've seen. They learn language. They want to know more about Western weaponry and armor and customs and strategy. And then also a big example with John, that thread throughout the episode of learning to see Pippin Gren for who they are and not just unimpressive recruits that seem beneath him. But the biggest one that ties into so many threads under this thematic beat is Ned's inability to look beneath the surface of Jamie in the throne room. Despite his wisdom and his kind heart, he can only hear the Kingslayer. He can't hear the actual words of a man who's essentially asking, why does it matter how I did the right thing when I was just trying to help? So I'm curious what you gathered in regards to this theme and how it fits in. Wow, great call. Yeah, it ties into a lot of things we're talking about here. And um, yeah, going back to it, I... I, I, I guess it does tie, tie into the, even the main theme I'm talking about, about what, about 
changing growth and adaption and the stubbornness of Ned. It is shocking. The shock on, on Jamie's face uh, is, is palpable. You feel it. So if Ned in that moment, we ask uh, often here a great Game of Thrones what ifs. Ned in that moment, what if he goes, yeah, you know what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Complicated times. Bad, vicious king. Killed by family. I don't like the Lannisters. But you're a Lannister. All right, I forgive you. Now, in the back of his head, is he thinking, you uh, you killed my son, you, you, or you attempted to kill my son. Um, you got Bran roaming around my heart and my brain. So let's not forget to factor that into the conversation with Ned in this moment. But what if, what if, let's just, in a very general idea, if he forgives Jamie, accepts it, does the tensions between the Starks and Lannisters go away? Well, Cersei would have something to say about that. Joffrey would have something to say about that. But Sansa's going to marry Joffrey. Does Jamie then feel a little better about himself? Does Jamie maybe feel a little forgiven for his past mistakes and his trauma and shame uh, is, is released a little bit or he can deal with it or he can move past it? Uh, it's an interesting, interesting conversation to have. What if Ned in this moment says, thank you. I see beyond what I... I'm taught to see about you and what I'm supposed to feel about you. And I, I'm going to change the course going forward because it works for John and Alden's mentions it in the, in the call. And this is the Tyrion side of it. There's some harsh lessons from Alistair Thorne. I do love my Alistair Thorne. Uh, Benjamin saying it plainly. You're not better than anybody. Tyrion saying that in his own way, but instead of just saying, you're not better than anybody. He is, not lowering John to everyone else around him. He's elevating Pip and Gran and even Rast up to the level of Jon Snow. That is what I see Tyrion doing. That is really why I love what Alden's suggesting here and, and looking below the surface. Yeah, Jorah. Jorah's a great example of that. A great conversation. Yeah, I love Ian Glenn. Make Slow. Yeah, slow. It's true. Uh, foreshadowing uh, at that moment. We're going to talk about foreshadows. Um, but yeah, I think it's really on display. That's why it's, it's such a, a, an important episode for Lord Snow. Again, he is Lord Snow, a Lord with no name, right? A Lord with no house, really, from some people's perspective. And Tyrion moves Pippin Gren and others and everyone, everyone up to John's level. You don't have to, you're not going down to steerage. Don't go down to steerage. That's no good. A lord in steerage class might make you feel good, but they're, they're still in steerage. They're still the poor folk. They're still drinking bowls of brown. What if you were to go down to their level and then bring them back up to yours and look at the productive, healthy, relationship and the value you all get out of it and what you can do together. Think about that. I think John does. And that definitely, definitely factors and fuels other decisions of his. So great call 
Alden. We are going to take a break here on the podcast. If you're watching on the YouTube version, by now you know what happens. You hear the music play. I do a save as and start a new file. This is like watching the old radio shows that we used to be in malls. And you drink your Slurpee and, and have a hot dog and a stick and watch the DJ do his work through a window. I'll hang out with you during the break here on YouTube. Uh, this is what we do here. This is Casterly Talk. We will be right back if you're listening on the podcast. Hey y'all, what's going on? This is Kojak. I create music that can be found both on YouTube and SoundCloud, and now I'm a recent streamer on Twitch. So if you're looking for some chill instrumentals, check me out on YouTube and SoundCloud under KOJQ. And for some laughs, you can check my Twitch page under KO underscore JQ. Everyone, please be safe and thank you. Hey, it's Alden Diaz here to tell you about Octo Radio. It's an interview show that I do exploring the different passionate Star Wars perspectives from artists, writers, crafters, and even other podcasters, plus even some people straight from Lucasfilm. So you can come hang out on my podcast island and celebrate the Star Wars ties that bind us together. Oh yeah, what the pork said. You can follow us everywhere on social at A-H-C-H-T-O Radio. That's Octo Radio and follow me at A-D underscore Strider. Why We Love Star Wars by Ken Napsuck is a collection of little love letters to the greatest saga ever told, and a personalized copy can be yours today. Just go to KenNapsuck.com and choose the Shop tab. There, you'll find options to purchase exclusive poster art designed by movie trivia Schmodown star Janine Bryce, a signed copy of Why We Love Star Wars, and collector Napsuck file cards. Already have a copy of the book but still want an author's signature? Then check out the book plate package. Get a signed book plate sticker and a 3D printed keychain sent straight to your spaceship. Go to KenNapsuck.com for pricing and shipping information. Welcome back to Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsack by myself today. I hope you're all okay with that. Having a lot of fun hanging out, talking about episode three of season one, Lord Snow. We took, uh, took a deep dive into the themes, but let's also go to the other fun part of watching the show, but even the better part uh, of all that, going back and seeing things that now have more meaning. Things that have uh, important foreshadowing elements to them. There's a lot. You talked a lot about the Jorah one. Actually, I love the Jorah one. Just uh, him just uh, basically explaining how he'll defend himself at the at the end of um, at the end of the the season uh, to uh, Ricaro uh, and, and talking about the Dothraki weapons, the lack of armor, all that stuff. That's that's some. Yeah, as a Jorah, for as a Jorah fan like myself, that's some foreshadowing I, I enjoy. Here's some other foreshadows, uh, things that mean more now, some that are just emotional pullings. Uh, when we talk about foreshadowing in Game of Thrones, I think that often ties to the big things, the prophecies, the revelations, the big twists. Uh, but there's also just political foreshadowing in this episode, too. And those those moments are just as valuable to me. Uh, a lot of people just, 
I've, I've met people that are like, I love Game of Thrones. Not the magic and dragon stuff, but I love the politics, the intrigue, and, and um, the the inner workings, which also might have factored into, by the end, seven and eight, maybe, yeah, some of that stuff's got to be uh, jettisoned out so we can deal with the big stuff, the big magic, the big fights, the big dragons, right? I don't know. Another conversation to be had. But I love the small council scene and the Count and Coppers and the crown in debt political foreshadowing to me. Something that's very important to Baelish. You're telling me the crown is three million in debt? I'm telling you it's six million. What I'm not telling you is that works very well to my advantage and something that will, of course, factor in later on when the Iron Bank comes crawling uh, uh, calling, crawling and calling and when uh, Davos and Stannis go to the Iron Bank and play upon um, that angle with, with the Iron Bank then uh, it does factor in uh, the political uh, inner workings the mistakes, the foibles of uh, Robert as a king, foibles is a nice way to say it. So the crown in debt also going to the Cersei moment with Joffrey and her saying plainly the North cannot be held uh, that is going to be a thorn in the side of a lot of people trying to hold King's Landing throughout. And how, in the end, it, it's a, it's not quite foreshadowing Sansa being Queen of the North, but it's in that vein. It's just the truth. The North is its own land, its own world. We see it on display here with Ned not changing his clothes and saying, nope, I'm a man of the North and I'm sticking with that. That's going to be something that not just Joffrey deals with, but whoever gets up there. It's important to Tywin. He has to trust uh, Roose Bolton uh, and the Boltons at one point. is to put them up there, but it was it's always a problem. The North is always a problem. The North, as Cersei says here, cannot be held. Uh, I love uh, Arya. You know, Yorin is the one who just, you know, plainly uh, gives her the idea to say the names in season two, but I like here that she just, she starts naming names. It's a different kind of foreshadowing. Arya's just like, I, Joffrey, the Hound, Cersei, I hate them all. I hate them all. Uh, you know, uh, you know, hate leads to suffering. This we know. But I love that Arya's just, uh, in season one, episode three, her list of names was not something that stuck out to me yet the first time I watched it. So, um my book reading experience is coming a little bit after season one. So I love that there too. Uh, we got the things with more meaning now. We'll jump to that for a second uh, with Ned and Catelyn saying goodbye. It's one that always just, uh, it's, it's a heart string. And the moment you go back and watch season one for the rewatch it for the first time, this scene pops out. It's heartbreaking, but there's some foreshadowing there too, right? Very for stuff that's about to happen real fast with Ned saying, you watch yourself on the road. That temper of yours is a dangerous thing. Ned doesn't say, watch yourself on the road. It's uh, you're a lady and it's just you and Roderick and it's dangerous, which is, you know, was said before just to get Roderick on the road or get Catelyn to agree to Roderick to accompany her. But Ned knows her too well. He's not worried about her and what people will do to her. He's worried about what she in this time will do uh, to others. Uh, Interesting insight from Ned. I actually really love that. And it's a great moment. Yes, and that moment means a ton more now. It means a lot more. Ned and Kat saying goodbye for the last time. It's just one of those emotional moments there. There's other little moments along the way. I mentioned it, but Jamie finding, or Ned finding Jamie near the throne again. We don't know if you're, again, watching the show, book readers who are going into season one with more information, you know what this means. But we're trying to deal with what we were watching on the show at the time. Ned finding Jamie near the throne again and what that means for their history 
Um, and what that means for Jamie's history there, we eventually get the flashbacks. Um, Ned, not just with his family, but what's going to happen to him then. For a lot of things happen in front of that throne, and a lot of things happen between them in front of that throne. So I like that there. I, t- I mentioned about uh, uh, Cersei telling Joffrey, do something nice for the Stark girl. It's something that means more now to me that we know Cersei's character. And I take it, and this is me going down this path. Follow me if you will. Talking about Game of Thrones, what ifs? I don't know if this changes everything. Just like if Ned forgives Jamie in this moment, what does that do? What's the emotional ramifications? Not just the plot ramifications of the what ifs. I'm more interested in some and those emotional ramifications of Jamie and, and, and Ned coming to a different kind of uh, agreement at the end of that conversation. But Cersei in this moment telling Joffrey, after Joffrey's been like, I don't, I don't want to marry that Stark girl. And yep, she says, if you want to, you know, boop, painted whores, go for it. I try not to curse kids, even though it's Game of Thrones. She talks about the painted whores, talks about the noble virgins, whatever. You're my son and I'll give you everything you want. She's having those conversations, and, and Joffrey is already being Joffrey, uh, even though there's, again, a quieter, this is a quieter Joffrey moment, and she forms him. She does a great job of forming him and kind of locking in the Starks, our enemies, all that kind of good stuff. But lost in all that is her just saying, do something nice for the Stark girl. I've always taken that, I'm sure a lot of you will agree, I've always taken that as her just from her own experiences. We, we talk a lot about she sees a lot of herself in Sansa, in terms specifically in, in the journey Sansa is now on. And I have to wonder if Robert had just, if he just done one thing nice for Cersei, just treated her a little nicer, what changes? What are the ramifications of that? I love Robert Baratheon. We talk about justice for Robert a lot around here. I don't want to completely just cast him as just a horrible character in person. Mark Addy taps into strong um there's an empathetic pull uh, from the heart of robert baratheon but he didn't treat cersei right he never was going to treat cersei right and sometimes he just absolutely crosses the line and and treats her bad we know this physically abusive we know this not good things not good things and cersei has now almost a, her whole lifetime dealing with this 17 years or so right on the show if robert had just shown her one one nicety. What does that do for Cersei? Who does that make her be? And also, in terms of Robert's safety, if he had been nicer to Cersei at all, showed her one little nicety, does she then essentially have him killed off? The boar and the wine. Food for thought. Uh, I love uh, the conversations we have with Ned and Arya, but there's a lot in there, a lot in there, a lot for Arya's character. But Sansa's your sister, because she says, I hate Sansa. Uh, I don't really hate her. The, we shouldn't have forgotten this. We never should have forgotten this. Yes, some of the the handling of the Sansa, Arya, Baelish plot in season seven, I know not handled the best, a little clunky. A lot of people just don't like it. I get it. But just in terms of the story, in terms of watching and engaging with this Game of Thrones story presented to us when we get to season seven, we should remember scenes like this. Ned, again, I talk about the shadow of Ned, the legacy of Ned Stark, hangs over the entire show, all eight seasons. He really does for these Stark children, including John in there, too. And this is one of those moments for me. Sansa is your sister. Don't forget it. 
Uh, Bran, uh, I so old Nan. We'll talk about old Nan and and uh, at the end of the episode here. But uh, Bran saying to Rob after Rob's like, ah, you know, old Nan when you know said we're all living the eye of a blue eyed giant named Macumba, and Bran says maybe we do. That means so much more to me now because everything that old Nan was just telling Bran, we know and we obviously get the sense even just from the opening of the show, the cold open with the White Walkers, we kind of get the sense that hey, a lot of these characters aren't seeing what's actually happening. But I love that it's Bran who will go and see all this stuff head on. He'll be involved with all of this stuff directly. But to have, have him just plainly say, maybe we do, as if maybe everything we've heard is true. Maybe some of the crazy things we've heard are true. It's a powerful moment for me. Uh, we talked about Ned and Kat saying goodbye. Uh, John looking out beyond the wall for the first time. Just a great little scene with him and Benjamin. Important scene, but I love him going up there and looking out. You get to see him looking out onto the to the land of the world that will absolutely change his life and, in truth, end his life, and then uh, have him reborn and, in the end, uh, completely reborn with a new life, a new existence. There, uh, we have got um, some favorite moments, lines, and scenes to talk about here. Uh, we've got, uh, Ned and Jamie, that great scene. Uh, I love breaking out little quotes. Uh, you've chosen your opponents wisely then great line. Uh, when Ned, uh, accuses him, we see this later on with, uh, Varys too, uh, when he's accused of just kind of standing by, uh, and, and, and during this scene of just, um, you know, you did nothing. Uh, you stood and watched and Jamie shoots back 500 men stood and watched. I've always loved that delivery. Um, I love the Baelish and Varys with uh, Catelyn Stark stuff. This is the dagger. And this is, I'm not even worried about the themes here. I'm not even worried about any of that. I, I am worried about uh, the fun of this scene. This is classic GOT character work. This is when we had much more time with the story. We maybe, I don't know, maybe we got a little spoiled. Maybe that's the way we can look at it too sometimes. This is character work. This is plot machinations. And it's just downright intrigue. That dagger, that dagger. Who had that dagger? Uh, it was Baelish's. Tyrion had it. That guy had it. Ooh. What's going to be the answer? Sometimes that can uh, come back to hurt you as a fan. We get too wrapped up into these little uh, uh, you know, little intrigue moments. But I love this one. I love this scene. And the three of them together. I, Baelish and Varys together. Some of the best stuff. We all know that. But uh, the three of them together. And Roger Cassell just watching. Good there, too. Um, the, also the beginning of, uh, I love, uh, odd the Starks, quick tempers, slow minds, you know, it's an insult, but it's, it's true. Uh, Sir Barristan Selmy, really good to see Sir Barristan here, uh, shows up and I love, love, love this scene. I re- reference it a lot. If you, if you listen to Casterly Talk and Daily Thrones, you probably sick of me talking about it here, but I love this scene. There's so much in it, a little bit of foreshadowing with Robert talking about the dumb highborn lad thinking he could end the rebellion with one swing of his sword, uh, foreshadowing for me to Jamie. Uh, in season seven, charging after Daenerys, there. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to say da- uh, Jamie's a dumb, highborn lad, highborn indeed, but did think he could end this rebellion with one uh, swing of his sword, so to speak. So I love that moment. Uh, so much there. Talked a lot about it. Again, the scene shows uh, Robert's anger at his position, his position in life, his life, his mistakes, and again, he can't. Uh, he can't remain who he was as as a king, and and he and, and that that frustrates him and upsets him. So he just decides to never grow and look at the ramifications of that. There, but this is also we cannot talk about this scene without talking about the big perspective switch on Jamie. 
uh, couple this with the beginning scene with him and Ned in front of the throne, and you're already like, I don't like, I definitely don't like Jamie. I don't like Jamie, but okay, what did he do? What is justice? But in this moment here, the um, it's what it is, the good king. The we're three episodes in. You Robert's still the good king. He's Ned's friend. He conquered those mean Targaryens, right? This is what we're supposed to root for him. But he's a good king, and he is taunting Jamie. He is he is bullying him, and the chilling truth is presented to Robert, perhaps for the first time. I always took it as kind of a read as it's the first time, and it and it's definitely for us. So we don't deal with this truth yet, but uh, Jamie's saying, "Oh, he's he said what he'd been saying all day: burn them all." Mic drop. Um, absolutely loved it. Absolutely love that. Um, so, yeah, there you go. That's one of my favorite scenes there. Uh, then we go up to the wall. Oh, my God, the wall. My Night's Watch hat. Uh, this is one of the uh, levels. Um, Tyrion, Yorin, and then Benjen. This is one of my favorite scenes. Love Yorin. Francis McGee. Shout out to him and Rogue One in a, in a long career, UK career, uh, mostly UK-based. Um, it's a great scene, man. Um, just absolutely um, just absolutely love everything about it. Uh, there's some classic GOT. What is true? Both perspectives might be right. Tyrion is great. Yord's great. Benjen's a grump. Benjen's not wrong. And then throwing uh, it into, um, you know, I think this is also t- does tie a little bit more into that theme of uh, it, 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 you know, more of it's it's who you are and, and who you appear to be to Alden's call about the Night's Watch and what they are. And Tyrion has a line on what they really are. He sees them for what they really are. But then Benjamin's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I get it. Walls, walls up. Wildings were on that side and they're flesh and, and bone like us to get it. I'm good at killing them. I'm not worried about all that. I'm worried about what's beyond that. And you don't believe that. And that's a problem. And, uh, and, and Tyrion, you know, doesn't believe these magical things, these grumpkin snarks and, and, and all the other, uh, you know, spooky things that go bump in the night. I like Francis McGee's read when Yorn just kind of, he's in it. He's connected with, with Tyrion. They, they have a friendship and their friendship's going to grow on that road. But when he kind of turns away, when Yorn kind of turns away, I, I've always taken it as everyone in the Night's Watch. Everyone in the Night's Watch. Though they have some maybe antiquated views on the Wildings, they're just raised and taught that, and it's their job, and it's up for them to uh, individuals, as individuals, to maybe change and grow on that, especially when John presents it later on. But at the end of the day, I really believe everyone in the Night's Watch, even though we get the sense that the White Walkers are only recently coming back, and there's definitely some complacency. I definitely think uh, there's probably some uh, low-level criminals uh, up at the wall who just don't care about all those things that they hear. But slowly everyone sees things, feels things. He probably just feels it more than even sees it. They're hearing things more. And it's starting to make sense. It's starting to feel like, yep, everything we were told is out there is actually out there. And I think I, t- I see that in Yorn's face. This is why I love this scene. I love all the moments there. So um, good stuff, good stuff all around there. Uh, start of the episode as we start to uh, wrap up here. Thanks for those uh, watching me and listening to me kind of drone on here by myself on the episode. Um, start of the episode, Sean Bean is net. I just, I'll say it a lot part of the season. It, it, we talk about his shadow and legacy hanging over the show, and, and that's because he's that good. Uh, Miltos uh, Euro Limo uh, is um, probably saying it somewhat wrong there. Uh, UK uh, actor with a great Greek background. He, of course, is Sirio Pharrell. 
the Inigo Montoya of the series. So good. He shows up and just kind of steals the episode right at the end. And you're like, who's this water dancer? I like this guy. He does such a great job. Of course, look for his little cameo at Maz's Castle in Force Awakens. Uh, and then I want to shout out Margaret John as old Dan. Long career. This was her last role. She died in, in um, February of 2011. So um, uh, didn't even get to see this show come out. Her last performance episode was dedicated to her. She's so great. She's chilling. This scene with Bran, she's absolutely chilling. Um, and, and and it works for me. This, I, 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 get a little, I get a little freaked out every time. I, uh, you know, It's like, what do you know, old man? You, did you write some ice spiders? So shout out to Margaret John for that. I do have one call here. Great call uh, from Eric. So let's hear Eric's call about the doll. Hey, Cannon Cast really talk. So episode three of season one, Lord Snow, I'm going to talk about kind of a minor scene where um, Ned gives Sansa the doll. You know, Sansa's acting all upset because of kind of bratty, to be honest, after everything that's happened. You know, and Ned, you know, tries to make her happy, he gives her this doll. And, you know, she's like, uh, you know, I haven't played with dolls since I was eight. And I think the scene shows Ned's good heart, but also shows he was a little naive. It's, it's, you know, he shows he doesn't quite know Sansa maybe as well as he knows like Rob and John because you know he says you know war was easier than daughters but I think when we see that doll again which pops up again in Blackwater I think Sansa looks back on this moment with regret of how she acted great call Eric yeah this is not that Ned Stark needs any kind of uh justice uh like a Robert Baratheon or even my man Stannis. No, I'm not saying that. But, uh, I, I, you know, he doesn't have a handle. He's trying his best to raise his daughters. And it comes into play. They they talk about Ned's mistakes. And Ned did make some mistakes with them as daughters, uh, maybe not fully preparing them for the world. That does come up, and I think it's valid, and I think it's true. Um, but I think it comes from a good spot. He is out of touch. Uh, he does have the great line, one of those, uh, uh, the great lines that Eric mentions, but it's one of the lines that would get quoted, especially in reviews. Uh, you know, war is easier than raising daughters. Great moment. But there's some truth to it. And yeah, and that that is indicative of the legacy of Ned and how it continues to roll on. And this is, um, you know, now we're going to Blackwater, Sansa holding that doll. And even in the end, uh, even when they her and, her and Arya have those great conversations about what father said and did and maybe what he should have done, um, they're connected, I think, because a lot of lessons they learned from him a lot of the moments they shared with him in season one. And that's why I think it's powerful. Great call, Eric, there. Some uh, quotes I love on the way out here. Baelish, we are the lords of small matters here. Now, what's so great about that line, other than just it's kind of catchy and fun and look at this, Baelish is, he's lying. He knows. They all know. Perhaps Baelish and Varys better than the others, but Baelish definitely. The small matters being decided there. Pretty big ramifications. So great line. Again, we talk about everyone who isn't us is an enemy, Cersei, to Joffrey, and that's uh, something she uh, holds on to to the very end. And Ned saying, we've come to a dangerous place. We cannot fight a war amongst ourselves, saying that to Arya, and that's something that, to me, will stay with uh, Arya and Sansa, particularly later on and, and, and from Arya's uh, experience. Uh, and Benjamin saying, you're better than no one there. I think I, I just love that read. Uh, Joseph Molly's a really good performer, and uh, really, you're... Benjamin's an interesting character. We've talked about it. Complicated, but a lot of people love him. I, and his return is, I, I enjoy his return. Whether or not cold hands will be Benjamin in the books or not, I, I'm not concerned about it. It works for me on the show, and I'm glad to have him back in that great final moment, which ties to the pilot moment of his arrival, is also his departure as a character. 
Um, but he's just pulled in and you, he pulled or he pulls you in and, and, and his quotes and his lessons. And this is a valuable, important moment for John. So that is uh, it this week. Thank you to Eric and Alden calling in. Thankful, thanks, uh, thanks to all of you watching along, listening along, uh, me by myself. I think it might be me next week. And then after that, we got Andres Cabrera coming in. Rachel's ready to get back in. Lon Harris has written me saying I'm ready to go. Uh, hopefully uh, get Thomas or Thomas Atal on here too and his wonderful insights and more. Like I said, I've, I've uh, so many other people in my life, so many other people that I've uh, worked with over the years on Game of Thrones shows or just off uh, on other things, uh, Star Wars shows, everything, who are just also big Game of Thrones fans. And I, and I want to have these bigger thematic discussions of the show going a little bit deeper because again i think as we say in force centers joseph scrimshaw uh put out there in our force center uh mission statement engage with the story presented to you i think if you can do that with game of thrones too and not just look at the plot devices switches the machinations the intrigue which are tremendously fun but to me those are all have always been and always were meant to be the seasoning on this uh uh, uh, meal, our, our seasoning of our Game of Thrones uh, stew. It's better than a bowl of brown. So that's what we're doing right now, having fun looking in. That is it for this week. We'll see you all here on Casterly Talk. We look at episode four, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Bye. <laughs>